This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. This is Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the, inter- at the, at the internal medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. It might be one of those mornings, everybody. So I might get a little tongue tied today. I don't know if I had too much coffee or not enough coffee. We'll see. But I am delighted that you are tuned in this morning listening to us. This is the program where you can call in with any type of medical question that you have. You know, a lot of our Southern Remedy programs and are excellent and on uh, other days of the week, but they tend to be more thematic, and this one is wide open for you to sort of drive the content. So we depend on you to pose your question. We'll try to answer those questions if we can on the spot, or if we can't, we'll try to point you in the right direction. But we would love to hear from you right now. Maybe it's a new symptom that you have. Maybe it's a new medication or uh, maybe just something you don't understand about the medical problems that you have. Uh, certainly, we are here to help you get that information that you need to be a healthier you. If you're not able to call us today, we would also love to hear from you by email. You can email us by sending those to remedy at mpbonline.org. And if you're unable, I know in the middle of the day, little work schedules get in the way sometimes of listening. If you're unable to listen to us live, you can always check us out online, either through uh, through whatever podcasting app that you have. Just look for Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio, and you can download that and listen to us at your leisure. And uh, Throw us a, a toss us an email um, if you have any questions based on that uh, content. Boy, a little chilly this morning. Well, I hope everybody stayed safe with a lot of the storms coming through. You know, it's that November weather. I talked to people in other parts of the country, and they're like, tornadoes in November? You've got to be kidding me. That's right. Welcome to Mississippi. That's uh, we. Uh, those of you who have lived here as long as I have know that's just part of it um, in living here. But you do have to be careful and uh, thankfully, I think for for a lot of people in the state, it wasn't as quite as bad as we thought. You know, there were a lot of cancellations and things. I actually had clinic yesterday morning and uh, had a couple of cancellations in patients and not knowing what the weather would be. But thankfully, uh, I think for most of us, we were able to to skirt by that. But it does, you know, that's part of your health is remaining healthy and preparing for different things. And certainly, uh, you want to not blow uh, blow off a lot of those um, uh, warnings that come uh, your way. If you have a tornado watch um, or bad weather coming in, you know, sometimes uh, we can't predict what's going to happen, but certainly it's much better to be prepared than it is to go through that and have a lot of damage uh, to your home or to your vehicle or your life. And uh, that's the most important thing. So we want to make sure that everybody stays safe out there and uh, in doing whatever you're, you're doing day to day. So some of my patients have been asking me about, you know, different kind of vaccinations, the best way to pr- protect yourself against different things. One of the more common, uh, you know, vaccinations to this time of year is flu vaccine. We have been seeing some flu, both type A and type B. 
um, quite a bit. We usually see an uptick, uptick in the week or two after Thanksgiving. That just makes sense. Everybody sort of comes together. We've got people traveling from all kinds of different places and uh, and transmitting uh, lots of uh, you know lots of bad things uh, um, to their the people that they're around. But there's another one that, uh, particularly if you're older, that patients ask me about a lot. And, you know, the flu vaccine is recommended once a year for pretty much everybody um, to try to decrease the the prevalence of flu in the general population. But especially if you're at risk, and that tends for flu to be young and old or immunocompromised for whatever reason. Uh, So if your immune system is down, uh, for whatever reason, that puts you at risk for having complications of the flu. But even then, even if you have the flu and you're out for a couple of days, that's a couple of days of missed work um, or school. So that's that's a big can be a big impact uh, both economically and on your education and just causes a lot of disruptions that we could potentially avoid. Uh, but another vaccine that I'm often asked about is the pneumonia shot or the pneumonia vaccine. So this is a pneumococcal vaccine. There's a couple of different times that we give this. One is in childhood. So there's a couple of, uh, of uh, immunizations during childhood uh, of pneumococcal. And this is against one of the uh, strains of streptococcus. So it's uh, not the strep that you get, you know, in, your, in the back of your throat like strep pharyngitis. But it is in that same family. And the biggest thing that uh, this causes is one of the more common causes of things like, uh, like a pneumonia, uh, bacterial pneumonia in particular. Um, and again, if you're older, if you're immunocompromised, um, if you have lung disease, then it may be a reason to, <coughs> to uh, get the vaccine. I didn't call up on purpose, I promise, to try to get everybody to, to uh, attention on that. But this is uh, the pneumococcal vaccine has changed over time. There have been several different derivations of it. So just like there are different types of dogs, but they're in the same species, but like different uh, breeds of dogs, you can think about bacteria sometimes in the same kind of fashion. So we have different types of streptococcus pneumoniae. So um, that, uh, because there's different uh, types of that, these vaccines have been developed, and a lot of them have immunizations against that uh, multiple types within the same shot. So in other words, you get one shot, but it may cover 15 or 20 different types. Um, So we've had different ones uh, throughout the years that are developed, and those have been developed to be each one a little bit better than the one before, basically. So they study these after they give them. They look at the population. They look at where you vaccinated um, for a certain type of uh, uh, pneumococcal um, bacteria, and did you get pneumonia after that. And the latest one that's out there, you know, most of the time we've been recommending for these general population, once you get to age 65, then you get one dose and that's it. For a while there, it was two doses. There was a 13 and a 20, uh, 25. Well, now we have a, a pneumococcal vaccine that's a 20-valent, okay? So that's the 20 is all you have to, to really understand about that. And it does cover a lot of the newer strains of pneumonia and tends to have a little bit better immunity in the trial. So if you have not been vaccinated, you're over the age of, of 65, ask your doctor about this or ask your pharmacist at an, a local pharmacy. You don't have to wait till you go to the doctor to get it. 
And if you do qualify age-wise, then that's something that we would recommend, again, to try to decrease how much uh, risk you have of getting pneumonia from these types of bacteria. And somebody may say, well, you know, even if I get pneumonia, can I be treated with an antibiotic? You can be, uh, you know, with proper diagnosis and treatment. However, the, even the ones that are treated, they, if you're over the age of 65, it does put you at risk for a hospitalization. It puts you at risk for more um, uh, co- what we call comorbidities or things that can ha- bad things that can happen because you have an illness. So just keep that in mind and uh, ask your physician if you should have that. And, uh, you know, some of my patients are like, do, do you have to get it every year? No. Once you get that, um, you're pretty much good to go until they change those vaccines again, until they come up with something better. I'm waiting for, you know, we probably never will have that one vaccine that covers like multiple, multiple things. Certainly we do have combination vaccines, particularly in childhood that can do that. And there have been proven to to, uh, increase immunity to those to those different um, uh, pathogens, whether they be a virus or a bacteria. But there's really not, uh, you know, just one stop shop where you just get one of those. But they are effective. They're safe. Um, They do help decrease the risk of different things. And if you have lung disease, you may want to talk to your doctor, even if you're not 65. So that is asthma, COPD, uh, or emphysema. All of those are conditions that put you at risk should you get pneumonia from whatever cause, whether that's flu or whether that's a bacterial cause. So talk to your physician about that. Give them a call. If they say, hey, we're super busy right now, really don't want you coming into the office, just say, hey, can I get it at my pharmacy? Um, so that's a, a, a great way, sort of an adjunct to get it. You don't have to go to the doctor to get those. You can get those at the pharmacy even without an order. This is Southern Remedy, Dr. Jimmy, with you this morning live, and uh, would love to hear your questions that you might have about any kind of medical issue that's uh, bothering you or somebody else in your family, maybe even a friend. You can reach us this morning with those questions. Send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Lots of stuff in the news about different uh, things. I thought this was an interesting one. There was a study that was looking at Uh, Highly processed foods, so things like hot dogs, pizzas, potato chips, all the good stuff, right? Um, Highly processed foods, as it turns out when you study them, they meet the definition for addiction. So that's very interesting and sometimes as addictive as tobacco. So if you think about that and as, as addictive as tobacco is, you know, I tell my patients who are smoking, who are struggling with that and trying to quit smoking, we certainly have a lot of good, effective ways of doing that, whether they're medical or non-medical. You know, quitting smoking is really difficult, and uh, it's because of the way that it interacts with the brain. Well, it turns out a lot of highly processed foods meet those same type of uh, definitions for being addictive. Uh, So it's very interesting in the way that they affect the brain. They increase dopamine levels. Dopamine makes us feel good. And when it's withdrawn from the body, whatever that substance is, whether that's a food or a drug or medication that is causing an increase in those dopamine levels, then that can feel sort of a letdown. So it sort of feels like a depression and you want more of those things that uh, sort of stimulated that dopamine response. 
Uh, so it turns out you get these spikes from highly processed foods and you want more of them. That explains it, right? You're sitting on the couch and you're like, I really want a potato chip. Actually, nobody says that. They said, I want the whole bag of potato chips because your brain is being conditioned over time to want that substance and it gets habituated to it. So it's like, I know that I can get that and feel a certain way. And it's also why we say we have comfort foods, right? So those are things that we eat and we feel better. Um, so there's a lot to – we already sort of knew that, and a lot of people have been saying that for decades. Uh, but this is just some interesting research that they looked at a number of people and look at the dopamine levels, amongst other things, and basically a scoring system to say how you felt after eating – and the good news is you can rehabituate the brain, so it's not like just there forever. Um, you can uh, train the brain to, uh, you know, to re- to not be as a- addicted to these substances. Of course, it's easy to slip back into that. So knowing that um, is probably a pretty powerful for a lot of patients. So a lot of people say, you know, well, I know. If I eat a lot of that, I'm probably just not going to stop. And that's usually what I tell my patients, too. Look, if it's something that you know that you're going to crave, don't let it in your house. I mean, don't put it in your pantry or put it on your, your cabinet or in a drawer somewhere. If it's going to cause those uh, those cravings, then just don't get it in there because that is so easy to, uh, to get that. So uh, just some interesting research there. We're going to go to Sandy in Gulfport. Good morning, Sandy. Hi. Uh, question. I was found to have an enlarged thyroid gland. They did a biopsy, and it was inconclusive. They sent it away. It was inconclusive. Uh, they repeated the ultrasound the following year. They did another one. It was uh, negative. It's still large. Uh, lab results have always been normal. But over the last several years, uh, the skin has dried out excessively to the point that it's developed uh, eczema. The hair is now falling out. And I have acquired a new one set of atrial fit. So what now? What do I do? Yeah, so that's, the, you know, the thyroid gland is an interesting um, endocrine gland. So its uh, function is to sort of control uh, the metabolism of the entire body. So, you know, Sandy, that's that's one of the things that we look for if, if a, something's abnormal is the functioning of it and how it relates to different symptoms that people might have. And you gave some of those symptoms, so that's... It doesn't always go along with a malfunctioning thyroid gland, but sometimes it's, uh, you know, it is. So you mentioned dry skin, your hair can thin, uh, people might gain some weight on it, they might lose some of the hair in their eyebrows, particularly on the lateral third. So all these things can be symptoms of an under-functioning thyroid gland. And every once in a while, you can have changes in the size or structure of the gland. So the thyroid sits, which you know, but a lot of our listeners may not, on the front part of your neck. It looks like a little butterfly. Um, And sometimes that can become enlarged for different reasons. Sometimes it's the tissue itself in the thyroid that gets bigger. 
but it might be in relationship to, uh, you know, by itself without any kind of stimulation. But it also might be that it, the thyroid gland itself is not getting enough iodine, which tends to not be a problem in most um, uh, most developed countries because we use a lot of salt, and salt has uh, iodinized salt has iodine in it. And there's a lot of iodine in other foods. In some parts of the world, there's still some what we call a, a goiter from an iodine deficiency. So that goiter is just an enlargement of that thyroid. So you mentioned several other tests, and it sounds like they've really thoroughly tried to figure this out. They've done an ultrasound. An ultrasound is to look for abnormalities in specific parts of the thyroid because it, sometimes it can be just one part that's growing, and you can have a little thyroid nodule. They may follow that up with a biopsy, which sounds like they have biopsied it to look for specifically any causes that are making that thyroid gland enlarged. Sometimes there can be antibody production against the thyroid itself, which can cause it to be enlarged. The frustrating thing about diagnosing these, though, for patients and for physicians is that it takes time. And sometimes it's not even just days or weeks. Sometimes it's months. And you have to monitor several different things. So it sounds like they've checked off some things that are happening that could be happening right now, like cancer, like an overactive thyroid, you know, by by uh, stimulation of something or an autoimmune process. But that doesn't mean that it, they're just catching it early enough that it's not manifest itself in those in those ways yet. Now, Sandy, one thing I didn't hear you say, maybe you did because it was a little bit staticky there. Did you did they do some tests to see if your thyroid was overproducing or underproducing? That's like a TSH or a T4? Yes, all thyroid uh, labs have been totally normal the entire time. Gotcha. And are you seeing a regular your regular doctor for that or, or did they send you to an endocrinologist? Uh, I see an endocrinologist also so somewhere along the line I developed diabetes too. Gotcha. Yeah, and anytime you have one, you know, uh, endocrine abnormality, sometimes they sort of travel in groups too. So I'm glad you're seeing an endocrinologist. An endocrinologist is just a specialist in um, problems with the glands of the body and the hormones of the body. So that's that's good that you're seeing them. I don't have a definitive answer for you, Sandy. And even you know, if those tests are normal then it may not be causing those other problems like the dry skin, the changes in your hair, but it's probably going to need to be monitored over time. And every three to six months, probably they're going to probably want to recheck some of those hormone levels um, or even follow up with an ultrasound of the thyroid gland. Some of my patients have had similar things where their thyroid gland was just enlarged. All their tests were normal, and we're just sort of monitoring things. Um, cosmetically or even, you know, medically, sometimes the thyroid can get so big that it can press on structures where uh, it can cause a little bit of problems. And in extreme cases, sometimes, you know, surgical removal of the thyroid is is uh, required but uh, or either debulking of it. But that's usually a really rare thing that you have to do these days. But the biggest thing would be monitoring those things. Now, we talked a lot about under-functioning thyroid gland AFib is not typically caused by a thyroid gland that's not producing enough hormones. It's an overproduction. And um, 
it, you know, it sounds like if those levels are normal, that's probably not what was causing the AFib. It may be something else that's causing the atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation is just a, uh, you know, an abnormality in the heart rhythm itself. So I, I would say it, this is one of those cases where they're just going to have to follow it over time, and the endocrinologist would be the person that I would lean on the most with this, um, and just to see them probably every three to six months until either things get better, uh, they stay the same, or they're going to get you know you're going to get a diagnosis at some point because those hormone levels are going to change. Okay, thank you for your time. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. Yeah, thyroid. Uh, difficulties and problems can be extremely frustrating, even when you diagnose them. And those of you who have hypothyroidism know this. You can uh, be diagnosed with hypothyroidism where you're not producing enough of that thyroid hormone. It's an easy thing to treat in that it's a, a pill that you take once a day that has a synthetic hormone that you that replaces that function in your body. But sometimes uh, you chase that, those numbers, and you end up having, you know, you don't feel better initially. It can take up to two to three months to start to feel better and sometimes up to a year. So that's something I always warn my patients about. Hey, even when we have a diagnosis and we treat it, this is one of those things that takes a long time to get better. And even then, there may be a lot of dosage changes uh, with that that uh, hormone, some of you may have heard us talk about uh, uh, the most common um, formulation of that is called Synthroid, and it's one of those real tricky medications where you need to take it separated in time from other medications. So usually, I tell patients the first thing in the morning, take it. Don't eat anything with it. Don't take your vitamins, like particularly things like calcium. Uh, and don't take any other medication until 30 minutes after taking it. So it's one of those that it's a little bit tricky, and you can have uh, some changes in how it's absorbed in your body if you take it with other medications. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, uh, answering your questions, not just about thyroid, but about anything that you might have. And uh, we're going to talk about a couple of more things, including uh, emails, that email address. If you want to email us, is remedy at mpbonline.org. We're going to go to, I believe it's Rao from Vicksburg. Yes. All right. What's your question this morning? Uh, hello, Dr. Jimmy. Uh, I have a quick question related to what you were just saying about thyroid. Sure. I have low thyroid, you know, for, and I have been under treatment, uh, taking liver thyroxine, 50 mcg, uh, once a day. And I have been told by my pharmacist and my doctor that I should take it first thing in the morning, you know, at least half an hour before I have my breakfast. Okay, and I have been following that routine for several years now. I have a question for you. You know, I, I would prefer... You know, because I, I'm used to take, getting my coffee first thing in the morning, and I had to wait half an hour. So I would prefer, you know, to take the pill at night time before I sleep. And I've been told, uh, I think, by somebody that they contacted their endocrinologist, and they told them that it's okay to take the pill at night time, the last thing before you go to sleep. And uh, the only other medications I take in the evening are I take an amlodipine 5 mg for, you know, BP control and uh, a melatonin just before sleep, you know, to just get me into sleeping. So my question is, my BP is under control, my amyloid, my level thyroxine, 
you know, the thyroid levels, TSH and all, they are all in, well within the range. So is it possible for me to switch from morning to evening just before, uh, you know, later night before I sleep in terms of the thyroid level? Yeah, I think that's fine. Now, you still would need to separate when you take the thyroid, the levothyroxine, um, from the other medications that you're taking at night. So the amlodipine for your blood pressure and the melatonin for sleep, that would still, I would still say that need that needs to be 30 minutes difference from, yeah, from yeah, when you take yeah. those. But yeah, it's fine. And I tell you, you know, I, I'm fine. I know a lot of physicians will just would say, I'm glad you're endocrinologist that, that they said that, but because really, if you're consistent about it and don't take other things uh, around the time that you take it, it's going to be fine. They can adjust the levels yeah. if there's just a little bit of difference. But uh, th- the levothyroxine is a very long-acting uh, medication. Yes. So, yes. you know, it, it's not like you're going to feel that much different or it's going to work that much different. But I just tell people, hey, just stick with it. Take it at the same time. But I do have some patients that have told me the same thing. It's like, it's just too hard for me to take it that way in the morning. But I think I can do it in the at, at night. Um, and that works for them. Their levels are fine. Um, keep in mind that every time you change a timing or a dose of levothyroxine, it's probably a good idea to recheck levels two months, anyway, from six to eight weeks after you make those changes. So that's, Perfect. you know, if you, do, if you do them before that, and I know, that, I know that's a doctor decision, but, I'm, you know, just keep that in mind because a lot of patients will be like, well, why aren't we going to recheck levels till two months later? Because that's the amount of time it takes to get sort of readjusted to those kinds of things. Not so much with just changing it from morning to night, but if there's a dosage change, that's usually the, the case. Yeah, yeah uh, my question is uh, this, following up that, I started out with 50 mcg levothyroxine, and then my doctor felt it would be better to increase it to 75, and I've been following mm-hmm. 75 mcg for several months. He tested it, and I'm going to have my lab test again sometime in the middle of December. You know, and uh, But, uh, you know, my BP has been fine. It's well within the in normal range, you know, the 120, uh, 30 range, and, uh, you know, 70, 80 range. But right. I'm about 83, you know, so... Uh, and uh, my thyroid has been fine. My only question is, I usually take amlodipine immediately after I take my supper, which is about before 7. And I, if I take levothyroxine, it would be about, you know, 9 or 9.30 or something like that. And then, you know, my melatonin would be like, you know, 20 minutes before. Uh, but I can adjust that. You see, my problem is, with a levothyroxine in the morning, sometimes I have to go out of town or catch a flight out of Jackson or, you know, something else. I have to do any doctor's appointment somewhere, you know. So those kind of times I can't, you know, either I have to shift everything or wake up early or something like that, you know, which yeah. I don't like to do, you know. Right. So my question, my other question is, I think I may have asked this of the pharmacist, if something like that happens and, you know, I have, to, for example, if I was taking it in the morning, let's say, and I'm not able to take it at the regular time, but I have my breakfast, but I can take it, say, after two hours or something like that after taking my breakfast and any other medication, but leave half an hour or one hour before I do anything else. Is that okay in terms yeah, of preparing? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. And one time, you know, one time like that is not going to be a big uh, change in it. And uh, uh-huh. it, a lot of people will ask me, well, what if I forget a dose one day? I would, you know, what I tell them is take 
take uh, two pills the next day. Because again, yeah. that's that's not going to be. You're not going. It's not like you're going to be hyper that day. Um, it's going to even out overall. And, uh, you know, there there are some situations where I I know endocrinologists have given the whole week's worth in one day. Uh, I wouldn't recommend that for everybody. It's much better to take it at the same time in the same way every day for consistency. But, um, yeah, if, if you miss a dose, this is one of those that you can just now wouldn't say that with all medication, but thyroid, the way it works, you can, you know, just take an an extra one the next day. Yeah. 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 Okay. Thank you very much, Doctor. Thank you for calling. As always, you know, I enjoy, I enjoy talking with you and your responsiveness to patients. Oh, Thank absolutely. You. Bye. Bye-bye. We're going to go to Carl, who I believe is in Rocky Springs. Is that right? Yes, sir. All yes, right. Sir. What's your question this okay. morning? Okay. First of all, the medication you and that person was just talking about, was that Synthroid? Yeah, it's. I'm sorry. That's the, the uh, Levothyroxine is the generic name for Synthroid, yeah. Okay, I just want to find out from my wife. She takes that. Yeah. Okay. Um, have, have you heard of a – now, they sell this at a vape shop. It, it's called HHC. It, it's supposed to take – it's a vape. Uh-huh. It takes the place. It's, it, supposedly, it's legal. I don't know. You know, I, I just heard about it the other day. So it's in the same family. It is a little bit different than THC, which is the active ingredient in marijuana. Um, right. But HHC is um, – it's a little bit different, but it is one that causes some of the same types of, of things, the euphoria that you have, you know, the, all, this, all the things that you can sort of get high on, uh, it can do the same thing. The other question people ask about HHC is, will it show up on drug tests? The answer is, it, yeah, it can. Uh, so I'd be a little careful with that. So you can be impaired with it. It's not is you know CBD is the other thing that patients ask me about, and while CBD is unlikely, if it doesn't have significant levels of THC in with it, it's unlikely to you know cause some of the same symptoms of of euphoria and that high that you get from THC. It can still test positive on drug screens too. So uh, yeah, HHC, I'd be sort of careful with that um, because, and I'm I wasn't aware if it's you know legal to sell like that um gotcha yeah Yeah, i would uh, there's and there's no real evidence that it's any safer than thc either so i'd be a little bit careful about that right okay okay thank you so much thank you thanks for calling let's go to pat in gulfport good morning pat good morning thanks for calling thank you um i have a question about rheumatic fever and what you can tell me about it because I have this mystery that I'm trying to solve in my own life as to whether or not I had it as a child. Yeah. So it's um it, so rheumatic fever is a side effect or it's a it's it's a complication of an untreated um or inadequately treated streptococcal infection. So if you had strep throat or sometimes if you've had uh, strep uh, from a skin infection, then this can be sort of an autoimmune response to this. And rheumatic fever was one of those. And it, the, a lot of the problems, the reason they call it rheumatic is some of the symptoms uh, can be related to like joint aches and pains, usually with a fever. The long-term complications, you can have some some damage to the heart valves of the heart. And this used to be one of the leading causes of damage to heart valves. 
Um, so depending on what happened on that streptococcal, you know, that, that infection, then you may have had some some complications. And if the, it's, you can't just have a high fever, though, because that's really common. If, you know, particularly as a child comes in with strep, uh, strep throat or, even, you know, strep from whatever source, they can have a high fever with that. It's another constellation right. of symptoms with it. Well, I, as a, um, as a baby, I did contract the strep, my mother told me, um, and this was uh, late 50s, early 60s. And then as a very small child, I would present with the very high fevers, and she would rush me to the emergency room. And that's back when they dump you in the ice water. Yeah. And she said they did that. And then as I grew up, I would have these excruciating joint pains, and the doctors would say, oh, that's growing pains. And, um, and then I had a heart murmur. I was diagnosed with a heart murmur. Um, and so I've just been, you know, thinking back on all of this. And when I talk to my regular doctor about it, they just kind of look at me like, okay. So I'm just trying to take it serious whether or not I should see a, a rheumatologist about it. Um, I had some heart uh, problems, but I did. I had the heart cast, and they didn't see anything. But... Um, I, you know, I was just wondering because I know it's kind of rare. Um, yeah, and and the joints typically are at that first. It would have been the first time when you had the fever, so that shouldn't be something that's that's relapsing because of that. So I don't okay. think I don't think that's related to it. Now you could have had, you know, if you did have rheumatic fever, and certainly the the fever is another thing that doesn't come back either. It's not like after you have it once that you have the same symptoms. It's the damage to the right. heart valves is the is the biggest thing. I think if you're okay. that that would be the thing that I would hone in on. If you if you had a little leaky valve, it you know dependent that's common too, and you can have that without any kind of other cause. It doesn't really change how they deal with it right now, but you know as long as they're following that, the most common way is with an echocardiogram where they put that little jelly on your chest and little they're looking at the actual Why? you know valve and area and everything. But um, yeah, that would be the biggest thing that I would say that you needed to follow up on. But um, but yeah, the other symptoms okay. less likely to be rheumatic fever, and there's not really this far out. It's not like you would need you know a special treatment for that. It's just to be aware of the complications. Okay, all right. I understand. That sounds good. Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am, and thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. We've got lots of good calls going on right now. We've got three more on the line that have been patiently waiting. We're going to go to Sue from Beaumont first. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. I'd like to ask you a question about gallbladder. Sure. I think gallbladder trouble runs in our family. Everybody I know has had their gallbladder out. But um, every time I eat something cruciferous, I know I'm going to have trouble, but is there any kind of medication a person could take to dissolve a gallstone? And and for that matter of fact, why isn't there some kind of medication a person can take to dissolve kidney stones? Oh, good. good, good, good. That would be great, wouldn't it, for both of those things? Yeah, so, you know, uh, gallbladder dysfunction can take on a couple of different different things. One is that you just have a lot of stones in there. So the the gallbladder's function is to uh, consolidate, is to concentrate bile. So bile comes is produced by your liver and it is concentrated in the gallbladder and then it is pumped into the small intestine to help break down foods particularly fatty foods and you can produce more bile 
and have more gallstones, sometimes from uh, different things. So increased estrogen production. So if you have a lot of pregnancies, um, obesity can be a risk factor. Uh, Certainly family history, as you mentioned, can be a big risk factor or sometimes medications. Um, But as far as anything to dissolve it, nothing works really well. There are a couple of medications out there that have been used for that. Um, And the other problem with the gallbladder is sometimes it just doesn't contract down to pump that bile out. And the longer it sits there, it loses some of its moisture content and those bile salts uh, can uh, form a, a gallstone. And if it's big enough that it can't get through that little passageway through the duct into the small intestine, that's when you got problems and it needs to be taken out. Um, but yeah, see, so it'd be great if you had that. Now, kidney stones, a little bit similar process. So basically, if you have, if you get dehydrated frequently, if you work outside, if you're in the south in the summertime for long periods of time, or if you excrete certain um, 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 calcium um, compounds in your urine more than other people, all those things can be really uh, a causes. And, and kidney stones can be from a number of different things. So I mentioned calcium. Calcium oxalate is probably the most common one. But you can have other uh, types of kidney stones. Gout is another cause of that. So when you have uric acid stones... But, yeah, there's not really anything that that you can use to dissolve those once they get in there. Number one, we can't get to that area very well. It's not like you can take a pill. It still would have to go through the body and be excreted exclusively in the urine. It probably cause a lot more problems than it's worth. Uh, But it would be nice to have if we could get to that area where those stones are and uh, sort of dissolve them. Of course, there's other things that people use to do that. Ultrasound is another one, particularly for the kidney stone issue, but it can be a problem. So, yeah, no no good solutions there, Sue, but uh, that's that's certainly sometimes surgery is the only route. I, I, I don't know if you remember back in the day when if you had your gallbladder out, they had to cut you from, a surgeon had to cut you from your navel all the way to your spine. Yeah. In there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a long... That's why I never had it taken out. Yeah. Now it's just, you know, most of the time they can do those laparoscopically in your home the same day. Oh, well, thank you, Doc. All right. Thank you, Sue. We're going to go to uh, Diane, who's on the road. Good morning, Diane. Oh, Diane. Hey. Yeah, are you there? Yes, go ahead. Hello? Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so about 20 years ago, I was, I was in my early 20s, and I was diagnosed with an overactive thyroid, hyperactive thyroid. And I remember, and, and I took medication for about a year, and then it just basically popped back into place, and I, I haven't had to take thyroid medication since. But I remember my doctor saying something, and he's long since passed away, but I remember him saying something about the timing of the blood draw is a huge deal with thyroid, and he had me come in like four or five days in a row to do blood draws because the first one and the second one, they weren't showing any, any love, you know, weird TSH levels, uh, but then, like, the third and fourth one did, and he, I remember him telling me that he could tell when his wife's thyroid was out of whack because it was, when he could actually test her, um, because her body heat went up, um, but he could just tell by, like, just touching her that she was just putting off more body heat. Is that, is that something that's known? Is that a, is that, that one day your thyroid can can test fine, and then the next day 
not. Yeah, you can have variability in that. And I will say our, the testing for that has gotten a lot better over time so that we don't have to worry as much. It's not like a fasting level or different times a day. It's pretty specific on that. However, it does change. And there's lots of different things that happen to people that can change their thyroid levels. Pregnancy is a good example of that. Illness. Um, you know, you may have heard the term you thyroid sick. It means your thyroid's working just fine. If you have an illness or you have a hospitalization and then you test thyroid hormones during that hospitalization, even without any symptoms, and they're going to be abnormal a lot of the time. So we know that that changes. It's probably a good thing. You don't necessarily need to replace the levels of thyroid hormone during those, uh, those changes. But, um, yeah, there are a lot of changes. Then that's why just repeating the test may be the best thing. Same kind of thing if you had a hyper or an overactive or hyperthyroidism, uh, that can resolve over time, too. So a lot of times a doctor will just watch that for a while. We won't have to do any medications or surgery to follow up. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yes, thank you for calling. I'm going to go, we're going to try to squeeze in Mikey from Mobile in the last couple of minutes that we have. Good morning, Mikey. Sleep deprivation, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean you are going through sleep deprivation? Uh, the, yes, sir, and I think that it means everybody is going through sleep deprivation. Now, my particular case is that overnight with the storms coming on, I have these two dogs. One is eight pounds, the size of a newborn baby, I might point out, uh, and as cute as a teddy bear or cuter. And the other one is, is uh, you know, just a, a three years older. Anyway... Uh, <laughs> middle of night, <laughs> get up, Mikey. I gotta go out, <laughs> you know. And uh, uh, and I want, and then I want to play because right, it's nice right. and warm, and there's a storm coming. And yeah, yeah. So it, it's not necessarily just, but there are people who do have newborn babies. I'm sure you've never talked to any of those, right? <laughs> oh no, or experienced that. You're right. Yeah, yeah. it's it's very so, common uh, and at different different points, but uh, I I. Th- think you're leaning towards the the effects of this right yeah so what do you achieve i've got um um, a a sleep tea and i got coffee to wake me back up the problem is that i'm still like yep dragging you know nodding off i I, please forgive me doc but i nodded off for a few minutes during this program when (laughs) i did not want to (laughs) some people say your voice is so soothing there so uh but uh, yeah so so i got about 30 seconds to answer your question let me let me let me put a couple of things in there for you that might help so you mentioned a couple of things uh people you know getting back in that sleep cycle if you can of course remove the things that are interrupting your sleep trying to make sure that you have good sleep hygiene making sure the room's dark those kinds of things is if you can melatonin can can help to sort of recharge that cycle. So taking that right after something that happens can be useful. It doesn't work as well long term. And then a lot of people try the sleep teas or honey. Those are great. Um, and uh, and just making sure that you have a restful environment that can be beneficial. So all of those things I think can be ways that you can uh, affect that. This is uh, Southern Remedy, and it's been a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the the podcast producer is Jermaine Flood. You can tune in MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.